Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your uh, almost weekly rhetorical assault on the uh, news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. And I I made a mistake. I said almost. Um, This is uh, Camille Foster of Freethink. Delighted to be here. Uh, I am joined by two remarkable human beings for this 61st episode of our podcast on June 14th, 2017. Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. Michael Moynihan, national correspondent for HBO's Vice News tonight. Is it, it? Does it matter if I say of or for? Well, the preposition. I wasn't paying attention. Um, okay, yeah, that's fine. yeah. Of and for. Okay. Of. Yeah. Okay. For. Yeah. Am I for? Are yeah, you? I'm for it. Okay. I do it for it. So long as they pay you. They pay me. <laughs> <laughs> we had a Fat Albert conversation. We have a, we have a new new yeah. impersonation tonight. Fat Albert is in the studio. With <laughs> <me>. <laughs> that's actually Matt. That's pretty good. That's I Matt, actually had to Matt's go to Fat I had to go to YouTube. I was like, you guys are like setting up. And I like, like how you study. <laughs> I was like, want to like get the source material. Source material. Yeah, it was. A, it was. I had to find. And there's. A, it was a great one where Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids went to jail, and I have to watch it <laughs> after racist. this because it's like, no, it's not because it's the Bill Cosby's trial is going on now, and it won't be racist when Bill Cosby. He goes to jail. It'll just be like he's a not he's a rapist, right? Your presumption of his guilt is deeply problematic. I, I think he's guilty. <laughs> you have the Van Albert Cosby, but you also yeah. have the the comedy record Cosby, yeah. which is a lot of like. And then you smear yeah. the jello <laughs> and all over yeah. her. And then, then you have the pull up your pants, Cosby, which is the late one. And he's like, the black people got to pull up the pants. And it's like, what are you talking about? And he was like going, and everyone, all these conservatives loved him. Do you think he, like, Camille liked pull up the pants, Cosby? Oh, for sure. I mean, seriously? Yeah, you loved it. I mean, who didn't like Bill Cosby at that? No, no, pull, pull up, up the pants, pants Cosby. Remember, Cosby. Remember? Pull up the damn pants. I, yeah, he was doing I don't this know thing. that I, I was never particularly inspired by Bill Cosby's um, criticisms of black culture. I, I've never thought that pants sagging was a particular issue of great consequence. You know what is though? Folk. Raping. Well, ra- <laughs> that's a bigger issue than pants. Well, sagging. yes, I would say that yeah. if you are I mean a pants, if you are, him. yeah, if you are, <laughs> but this is what Bill Cosby was doing at the time. Yeah. If you are a pants raping. sagger and you are also a rapist, yeah, stop raping. Continue to sag your pants. Sure. No problem. I'm yeah. fine with that. I think we've solved Stop a lot snitching. of uh, problems. Well, that's what we, we do here on the fifth column. The children address, address yeah, we got many, it. Address a great many problems. I guess we're, I guess there is a bit of levity, right? A bit, a right bit of levity because because I think the I think we're going to talk about some depression. No, there's uh, there are some pretty awful things taking place right now. Um, there was a a shooting. Um, actually, in Virginia early this morning. I believe at the time that we are talking about this now, there were five people who were wounded. Um, uh, a congressman, uh, it wasn't clear early this morning exactly what was going on, but it was clear that at least a congressperson had been shot. And I, I mean, my first thought was, is this like a Republican congressperson? And the reason my mind went there was because a couple of pretty prominent free speech scandals, um, specifically uh, we had Kathy Griffin, who had that pictorial. Is it is it fair to call it a pictorial? She has I think all it was her just clothes one on. Picture. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so yeah a, it's, is that a photo? It doesn't spread? have to be in Playboy. It's just a photograph. To be a <laughs> it is a photograph in yeah. some publication sure. of her holding what appears to be um, a, a decapitated head or yeah. something head shaped with hair like Donald Trump's, um, and uh, that was 
just before um, the is Aslan is the way we pronounce it. Re, uh, Reza Aslan. Reza Aslan, who, who was, was fired. stupidly fired by CNN. And, and that was not that was not a violent act, but he uh, he had said something about uh, like the president being. He something uh, uh, profane. I about called the him an asshole or something yeah, like that. Something about but, something yeah. profane about the president. Yeah. There are plenty uh, of then, reasons he to was fire fired. Reza Aslan. That's not one of them. But I mean, the other thing is this play that has mm. been happening—a play that is well known to many people, uh, Julius Caesar, um, in mm. which the uh, the the title character Caesar is murdered. And in these restagings of the play, which are not only happening in New York City, but are actually have apparently started happening all over America, uh, where some theater producers and theater cr- theater groups uh, have decided that one way to sort of think about the, the tension between fascism and democracy is to stage or restage anyways, um, versions of Julius Caesar right now and to cast in the role of Caesar, Donald Trump. All of these things have sparked pretty significant controversy in recent weeks. Um, So those things, of course, colored my perception of things. And as it turns out, uh, the shooter was, in fact, someone who had been a Bernie Sanders supporter who apparently had been living out of his car for some period of time. There were early reports that he might have stopped someone and asked them. um, Yeah, the report was, by the way, that he asked two congressmen, actually, whether or not it was a Republican game. Um, so apparently he's not very bright because they were all wearing baseball shirts that said Republicans on the front of them. And he's he just, also a lousy shot. I, I mean, mean, 50, 60 rounds. And the only person who died thus far, thankfully, is that scumbag. Yeah. yeah. So, you although know. Uh, Steve Scalise is in pretty bad shape, according to uh, what I've seen out there. Like, yeah. Critical, uh, critical condition after surgery. Um, as of, as of last, um, the last report that I saw the, uh, the, the, Comments from uh, Rand Paul, who was there, and Jeff Flake, neither of whom got uh, injured, but they were uh, both kind of describing in full detail and multiple interviews. And, and I was talking to Camille about this before the show. Like, I haven't been through trauma like that. I've been through milder uh, traumas in life. And I don't want to go on MSNBC right after. I'm not going to yeah. do the CNN interview. I hope those guys seriously, uh, like, go somewhere and take a nap for a while. That's some messed up stuff. There's kids there that were uh, being sheltered underneath a, a dugout. Congressman's bench. son, yeah. And uh, what yeah. Uh, Rand Paul was talking about is like, there's basically a turkey shoot. Like if there weren't security detail there and they were only there because of Steve Scalise, because he's in line of uh, le- leadership in the house. Yeah. Um, they had no weapons, no the, the guys walking around with some kind of rifle. I'm not sure which uh, kind, but it was a higher power gun uh, than most uh, handguns. Um, and without those cops there, it'd just be bling, 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 if the guy was any good of a shot. And apparently yeah, I mean, you wasn't. hear the audio of that, and it's it's a lot of shots being popped off in a short period of time. Um, yeah, and of course, I can't remember which congressman's son who was, was in the um, dugout uh, with them and was stuffed. Ten-year-old. Yeah, a 10-year-old, stuffed under, and, and apparently didn't know, according to Jeff Flake, uh, that the people behind them that were uh, shooting, too, were, were the good guys. There were, of course, because Steve Scalise is the majority whip and is in line as, uh, I guess, the third most powerful Republican yeah. in the House, it would be. Um, so, yeah, he had he had security there. Um, but, of course, what what immediately happens, and this is why Twitter is awful, is just the second, um, now it's going to be Republicans' turn 
to act like Democrats did during the Gabby Gifford shooting. And I saw that you were tweeting about this, Matt, and writing about it. But of course, right after the Gabby Gifford shooting, we remember the phrase and the phrase uh, goes back to the 1960s. I mean, it's an old phrase, but it reminds me of 1963 when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. There was an enormous amount of uh, conversation about the climate of hate in Texas, never mind that the shooter himself was somebody who defected to the Soviet Union and was handing out fair play for Cuba leaflets and had previously tried to kill General Walker, one of the um, heads of the John Birch Society. Nevertheless, it was- Wait, the, you're not actually suggesting that Oswald was responsible for the Kennedy assassination, are you? Just him. Solely Oswald. Unbelievable. A great rule of thumb is if Oliver Stone thinks it, think the opposite. So it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was Oswald. Uh, but you, uh, Paul Krugman did the same thing after, after um, uh, Gabby Giffords was shot. Yeah. Uh, the climate of hate. And there was, there's literally no evidence- I mean, imagine the response uh, if it had been an opposite situation where it was, you know, Sarah Palin for president, um, uh, Facebook groups and the rest of it. There was no connection between Jared Loeffner and any kind of political ideology other than the demented kind of numerology that he was writing about. He was like, you know, the numbers mean this. I mean, he sounded like Farrakhan. You know, the number 13 means this. But nevertheless, I mean, there was a strained effort by almost everybody that I knew and I remember so distinctly when Gabby Giffords was shot because my daughter was probably three weeks old, four weeks old. Oh, wow. And it was right before I moved from D.C. back to New York. And I remember sitting in the apartment that a sort of temporary apartment that I moved to and getting this feeling of like, I just want out of this. I just don't want to be involved in politics when I see and I was writing about politics a lot more at the time. And I see the the just, you know kind of, the, it was sort of like this chum in the water and all of these rabid, psychopathic fish going and tearing it apart and trying to find the cudgel with which they could take yeah. it, and sorry to mix metaphors, and beat their political opponent a, with. A lot of that was at the time, and I was rereading uh, today because uh, uh, Bernie Sanders made a, a very nice speech. Yeah, the guy was a for volunteer sure. for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, yeah. the guy from today. Yeah. Um, I think one time in Iowa, by the way. Yeah, like not a big deal. But yeah. Sanders just looked like, let me be unequivocal. Um, you know, violence is never the answer to solve a political problem, period. <laughs> Unless you live in Nicaragua. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Let's uh, be honest, Bernie. And, uh, and it was very nice. <clears throat> and then you go, go back and in January 11th, 2011, three uh -huh. days after Gabby Gifford's shooting, um, Sanders goes on uh, extended rant in a fundraising uh, email uh, criticizing John McCain. John McCain had given essentially the exact same speech that Sanders did today about Jared Loeffner, <clears throat> except with a notable exception that Jared Loeffner had no connection to John McCain, had no connection to the Republican Party, had no connection to anything. But Sanders's emails like John McCain did not go far enough. What he needed to do in that moment is to go after the right wing climate of rhetorical violence that is obviously causing this. And this is just to be fair to Bernie for a half a second and, and, and Krugman and the New York Times editorial board, which also talked about the climate of hate and, and how people really need to scale back. And we have to stop talking about like the war on Obamacare and stuff. We need to get rid of our rhetoric, particularly if it's on the side that we don't like. 
But this came on the heels of the panic, the brown panic of 2009 and 2010 of, of town halls going crazy and, and, uh, uh, and being anti-Obamacare. This right. is all like Tea Party groups is the politics of the jackboot, according to E.J. Dion. Everyone just assumed that we were on the verge of a race war. And I'm not being hyperbolic. No, just that was totally that was totally up, the case. Uh, especially at Reason.com. But, we were actually uh, you know, warned that the same thing might happen if Trump lost the election, that there were so many hyped up uh, conservatives out there who wouldn't they accept might, the result. They wouldn't the accept election. the result and, and they would march on Washington with violence and force. So uh, so look at the Sanders language, Krugman's language, too, which, which is like, come on, in your heart, you knew this was going to happen someday. Uh-huh. Like it fulfilled the narrative. The problem was the facts didn't fulfill the neighborhood uh, narrative. It just fulfilled the the killing and the violence. And uh, and it, it's, it's an instructive reminder now to look at people uh, t- uh, talking and reacting. When someone kills somebody, look at the perpetrator. Look at the guy who That's pulls it. the trigger. The end of the story. That's where it is. That's it. Bernie Sanders is not responsible. Despite the fact that Bernie Sanders is a hypocrite, we can point to this stuff. With, with the play at the public theater, which there has been a lot of conservative hand-wringing about this, mm-hmm. um, you know, f- asking advertisers to pull out. And we'll get to the Megyn Kelly thing, too. Yeah, which is I the think same there's a thing. relationship there. There's a relationship in, in, in all this stuff. Um, you know, the argument that I hear most frequently is correct, but not really a necessary argument to make in the grander scheme of things. The argument is this. If this were a, you know, play mocking Obama that was using Shakespeare to ultimately kill off Obama, Uh there would be a outrage that couldn't be contained. And it would. That's true. There certainly would have been. There certainly would have been. There was that play in 2012 that cast Obama as Julius Caesar and no one really cared. I didn't even I know, that. I don't yeah. know about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a there's a, like contemporaneous reviews in the American Conservative and New oh, York Times. Sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, it's no big deal. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, in, which, in, which in, play was that? Julius Caesar. It, it was. Same, it was Caesar. Same guy cast in Caesar. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is this is the but thing. One, one final oh, thing ahead. on this, and there was there was um, uh, you know a number of books and plays about the same thing about George Bush. There was a film, a British yeah, film a, called The Assassination of Tony Blair. Um, it was the, a film about the assassination of George W. Bush. Yeah, yeah. There's, a lot of this is out there. Um, you know, and, and you can do the thing, which is kind of a form of whataboutism, mm-hmm. is like, well, what about when somebody else does this? I don't really care. I mean, it's an interesting exercise that we all know that there's a double standard in certain things, but it doesn't, you know, get us a- away from the basic fact that, you know, plays don't cause violence. If there's a play of Donald Trump being, you know, mock executed in Shakespeare, it really, I don't believe in any way, shape or form that somebody is going to be inspired by that in a John Wilkes Booth way and go, because there's a lot else going on there with John Wilkes Booth, by the way, people have been- All about Julius Caesar and <laughs> Shakespeare, it's crazy. No, no I know, and, but it's like, if you, know, if, you, if you make your assassination attempt literary, it doesn't mean that the person who wrote the play is responsible for the assassination. And this is the thing, is this, you know, words are violence. And, and if you, if you want to do the whataboutism, you know, go on a campus today, where everything has been recast as violence. Words are always violent. This is a violent thing, and it allows people at that point to say we need to shut the speech down because it's going to precipitate violence. And this is, I mean, if you open up that Pandora's box, you have to close down Julius Caesar with Donald Trump as Julius Caesar. You have to close down any book, not let it be published, or say that is not within the confines of free speech. I had many of these these conversations 
in the last few weeks with students who told me that, you know, X happened and therefore it visits violence upon us as people of color, as trans people, as w whatever it might be. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us to shut that down. Your free speech doesn't help me when I'm dead. Somebody actually said that to me. So if we expand that, they never want to expand it. If we expand it to all of these plays and you know everything else, we just shutting down art, throwing people in prison for making art. And the people who are responsible for this are the people with the guns. That's it. Well, Representative Mo Brooks was also there um, at on the uh, on the baseball field when this took place. And there was a quote from him that was making the rounds earlier today, which, I mean, is is really pretty amazing um, for someone who had just witnessed all of this happening and, and not only just witnessed it happening. Uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say that if you are out there on the field and there is gunfire coming in your direction that you are being shot at. You Fair survived, to describe it that way. You survived an you assassination attempt. Yeah, you survived an assassination attempt and you you fly into action and apparently he's using a belt as a tourniquet um, to try to to try to save his uh, his comrades. Um, but he's a doctor, right? I, I don't know, is he? One of the one, one of them, of them was, was yeah. Okay, I'm not sure, but uh, he was asked the question about whether or not um, his commitment to the Second Amendment was impacted by having just experienced this and he says not with respect to the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is a right to bear arms. It ensures that we always have a republic. And as with any constitutional provision, the Bill of Rights, there are adverse aspects of each of those rights that we enjoy as people. And just to skip ahead a little bit, but we're not going to get rid of freedom of speech just because some people say something really ugly that hurts other people's feelings. We're not going to get rid of the Fourth Amendment and seizure rights because it allows some criminal to go free who should be behind bars. These rights are there to protect Americans. And while each of them has a negative aspect to them, they're fundamental to our being the greatest nation in the history of the world. So no, I'm not changing my position on the rights we enjoy as Americans. Um, whatever you think of the Second Amendment, uh, I mean, that's I think that's a pretty that's a pretty profound statement. And I suspect that most people who disagree with him on the Second Amendment would agree with the rest of the sentiments that there that are there. Although there are, in fact, plenty of people who believe what you were just alluding to, Michael, that hate crime, hate speech is different, whatever that means, that certain sentiments can't be expressed on college campuses, that they don't deserve to be expressed because our lives are in jeopardy. Um, or these words are somehow injuring us, or there's some historical connection to all of these words. Um, so I, I suspect that's something we can come back to. Before we sort of get too far away from this, Matt, I mean, I, I read your piece. I, I agree with it in large part. But, I mean, I wonder about the, the difference between sort of culpability for a particular act of violence, which is easy and straightforward. Yes, that's the person who pulls the trigger. But there's something about having a, a disposition as someone who talks about public policy, as a practitioner of politics, and not engaging in sort of hysterical hyperbole that does, in fact, inflame. Is, isn't there something to be said for the, that? I mean, I know I, I, think I, try, on, to, I try my very best not to do that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, and I do too, de depending on how much uh, State of Jefferson rum that we've had. <laughs> yeah, here. yeah. No, Holy this is cow. this yeah. is true. This is true. true. The letter S was just a little a struggle drunk. Struggle. <laughs> yeah. Last time. Although, as, uh, as one of the uh, commenters pointed out, like uh, Moynihan never slurs. 
But that you know where, this about me, right? We've I, talked I guess, about this. I right? guess I never really like had it articulated that that clearly. No, like just, I, I've seen, I know you drunk. I know what that is. Yeah, you're even louder and more insufferable, less likely to listen. Impossible. A little bit more red in the face. <laughs> Impossible. And kind of funnier unless you went, you, you turn the corner and in the dark place. But but that's the, rare. But the thing is, if I turn the corner and I'm in the dark place, I never slur. I did, it's actually not never slur. Too busy stabbing. But I have a thing. I have a part of my brain. It's a very small part of the brain, which is kind of watching everything and says, "Oh God, you're getting drunk. Be careful about how you speak now." And I actually am always aware of how drunk I am. So this is your superpower. That's it. <laughs> it's, it's I said great. to somebody on Twitter today. It's it's it's. I have two superpowers. One is parallel parking, and the other one is and people not knowing when I'm really drunk. The drunkest I've gotten in the past couple of years, I remember sending a text message to a friend the, the, the next morning and, and he and I said, I'm really sorry. And he responded by saying, you were drunk last night. And I was like, I was like blackout and I woke up on the floor well, fully dressed on at, the subway at like <laughs> in Poughkeepsie, <laughs> uh, surrounded by a whole bunch of little people, <laughs> all who are wearing roller skates, weirdly, um, and saying, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Oh my god, I don't even what are you doing? It was Bill Cosby's house, uh, in Western Mass. But you were saying to, to, to Camille's yes. point, though, I don't like, do you think I that agree? Some... So, here, here's how I, I look at it I, yeah, I, I just uh, hive these off into separate. To uh, paraphrase, who was it? Uh, uh, I forget. What, uh, Heinrich is that a senator from Nevada? Uh, uh, he was talking about appropriate buckets hmm. during the uh, uh, during the uh, sessions hearing. Uh, so I separate these in the different buckets. As as a person, I agree that um, crazy hyperbole uh, in talking about politics is dumb. It, it's actually it's a shortcut mm. away from the truth. And so it's going to mangle your own sense of, of what things are. And it's also irresponsible. It's cynical. And it's a bunch of other stuff. I mean, I, this this has animated my reason for waking up in the morning since 1986 on in many respects. And so I uh, get that fundamentally when Chris Hedges, who is a subject of uh, my piece after uh, Loeffner, hmm. um, he's also a plagiarist. He's a plagiarist, and he's a, he's he's a, fraud. A, a total apocalyptic lefty. Um, who, in the wake of that shooting, when when a lot of Democrats were saying we really need to police our speech, he was talking about like, right on, Greeks, burn down more banks, kill more people, screw the capitalists, and no one batted an eye because it was coming from the left. It wasn't coming from the right. Um, it's important to point out two things: one is that he's nuts uh, saying these things, mm -hmm. but also two, he should have the right to it, and he's not inciting violence. Um, and and so in the in the case for for instance this week. Three days ago, Pat Buchanan wrote a crazy pants column. Sure. Um, and it was about, and it ends uh, with uh, this time, it's time now to storm the Bastille. And he was talking about how the media is the enemy and the political class and the deep state. And what we really need is for Trump to get out there uh, among the people, among the among the common Volk uh, and uh, and engage. <laughs> OK, he didn't say Volk. He said everything else. <laughs> yeah. The Volk was implied. Uh, and uh, and we have a civil war on our hands. And let's let's like get it on. Um, it's incendiary. It's crazy pants. Uh -huh. It's actually has an overlap with Alex Jones on on many levels. That's worth interrogating. Um, I think it's. It's in its own way reckless. And at the same time, I refuse to say that that column 
um, will cause violence or has caused violence. Even if someone has a Pat Buchanan tattoo on their arm and goes out right. and, and engages in a hatchet attack on somebody, it's not Pat Buchanan's fault. And I think it's important to have both of those concepts at the same time or else you're going to get to that evergreen college idea of like, well, we, we can have a lot of different kinds of speech, but we can't have Pat Buchanan talking about storming the Bastille. I think it is a time uh, to talk about that kind of revolutionary rhetoric. I mean, Bernie Sanders... Absolutely. It was the revolution that he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. And in his case, very specifically, if you listen to any long speech that he gave, his revolution was all about um, subsuming individuality into a huge course correction. Everyone's going to be doing or thinking or corralling in the same direction. That's weird. And it's worth talking about on its own. Sure. It's not responsible for violence. It, it, it isn't. And, and uh, you know, <laughs> this is the thing that people have to realize when this boomerangs back on themselves or their own side or something. That's even glancing, it invariably will. Invariably will. Like glancing at their own side is that if Pat Buchanan's column, you know, calling for the storming of the Bat Bastille and the overthrow of the media industrial complex, whatever nonsense he's saying now, um, if that is something that is inciting violence and something we should be concerned about, you know, the people that I could imagine saying that are the same ones who are wearing a destroy capitalism T-shirt or, sure. you know, destroy the system. Is that something that is inflammatory rhetoric? Uh, yeah, sure. But it's totally fine. I'm, I'm perfectly fine if somebody, I mean, good luck. You're not going to do it. And, you know, every revolutionary movement, you know, begins with this kind of rhetoric. Right. And it would all it's also used when there's an uprising in 1956 in Hungary, we have to destroy the system. This is counter-revolutionary. It is incitements to violence. So we have to be careful about, you know, which, like what that actually means. I mean, is it, you know, Donald Trump being killed in a, in, in a play in, you know, Central Park? I, I mean, it's like, it's, it's quite a stretch to say that these people are calling for the death of Donald Trump. I mean, they're more and, than, and let's keep in mind, more than anything, they're calling, they're, they're calling him a tyrant, right? They're right. saying it's that, you know, it's this, this, it's allegorical. It's this, but here's but, the but thing some, about some, speech. some people may be deriving a particular bit of pleasure from, from I seeing, bet, from seeing I the bet president. They are, but are they, are they, are they deriving motivation to go out and do it themselves? No, no. I, and also I, go to the text. It's not, a, it's not, a, it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not a heroic a thing with the yeah no it doesn't it doesn't end well but, and and he's celebrated so I, I think the New York yeah. Times opinion page actually wrote a piece um, there was a piece there anyways yeah um, about precisely this that that Trump is no no Julius Caesar from their standpoint but here's here's the thing this is and I think I've mentioned this before about you know the glory days of the blog and the early internet and when everybody had a Gutenberg press, I remember that, I was going to liberate yeah, journalism yeah. from the hands of the elites. Yeah. Well, guys, when you liberate journalism from the hands of the elites, you put it into the hands of people that don't really care much about nuance. That doesn't mean that prior to the internet, there weren't people that were throwing bombs in the sure. culture. Right? Sure, sure. But incidentally, Ann Coulter in the 1990s presented herself as the you know constitutional lawyer who was making the, a complicated legal case for the impeachment of Bill Clinton and made that case on Bill Buckley's sedate, you know, academic show firing line. I mean, this, you know, people are unhinged. They've always been unhinged. We look back in history, the Lee Harvey Oswalds of the world's had, you know, newsletters that they sent to each other and they'd have to yeah. actively subscribe to. Yeah, things are different now, but let's accept that they're different in that they, you cannot put this genie back in the bottle and people out there do not have nuanced opinions. Yeah. It, no matter how hard you try, people are going to have very binary opinions about politics. People are more involved in politics. Imagine 
if Ronald Reagan was president in an era of Twitter, Richard Nixon in an era of Twitter, people had opinions and they, you know, you know, mentioned them at Tupperware Express parties. Them at work, yeah. yeah, at work. They put out punk rock records in, in, in DC, like Discord Records, Reagan Youth, all this stuff. Imagine that kind of exchange of information. That stuff's always been out there, and, and we can't try to figure out how to tamp it down now. We just have to figure out how to live with it. There's so many interesting questions around this. The role of technology, perhaps, uh, and maybe the platforms, the mediums in which we're communicating, and, and the role of the novice commentator perhaps me, um, in, <laughs> We're all in, in weighing, yeah, me, me more than you guys, but in weighing in on these issues and perhaps contributing to an environment that is less professional and less refined. I'm not sure that's true. In fact, I'm very skeptical of the proposition. As and, and, and that might not even be the thing I'm most interested in here. When we talked earlier about hyperbole um, and, and being hysterical in these spaces, we could, we could take this a step further, right? Like there is some fuzzy boundary between an actual incitement to violence mm -hmm. and simply using violent rhetoric in your political speech, which might not be ideal, but is perhaps not wrong to do. It's not, uh, it doesn't make you culpable in some act of violence that happens after the fact, but that, that boundary is in fact fuzzy. Um, and there can be a bit of a, a bit of a, you can have some difficulty in making a determination as to whether or not this is protected speech or this is an actual threat of violence. It's pretty it's pretty clear at this point. So you have to, it has to be an imminent threat of directed violence. That might not all be the perfect language, but imminent is part of it. According to the Supreme I mean, Court, imminent imminent is the same word that is used in language about like terrorism um, when we decide right. that we're going to assassinate someone a world away who can't get to the United States and is perhaps not involved in planning an attack, but thankfully, at a party. Thankfully, so I think our, it's similarly our, but, but thankfully, blurry. our free speech jurisprudence uh, concerning domestic affairs uh -huh. is a hell of a lot stronger than any kind of um, Supreme Court interpretations having to do with our ability to prosecute wars or to engage in secrecy uh, for national security purposes and this kind of stuff. Like we have this pretty robust free speech thing. I mean, it says that, for instance, uh, was it the uh, the stepfather of Michael Ferguson or something during the, the not Michael Ferguson, Michael Brown during the Ferguson yeah, riots? Yeah, yeah. At some point he stands up on a car, I believe, and said, let's go burn, burn, burn this, this down. mother down or yeah. something along those uh, lines. That was not incitement. Because Incidentally, Stokely Carmichael, the black nationalist um, sort of fellow traveler, he was in a Panther, but he he was arrested and prosecuted uh, for a similar thing, I believe, in the mid 60s in Baltimore, where he said, let's burn this mother down. And he was actually prosecuted for it. The know. difference would be like was, yeah. if you if you make that a general memory. So if you make that a general appeal and it's not about, OK, you know, tortures are there. Building is there. Uh -huh. If it's just like, let's burn it down. Yeah. That's okay. That's protected speech. If you say, here's the brick, that's the window, let's all go there and throw it, that is not protected speech. So I think that line actually is pretty clear uh, and not as fuzzy as you But I think in, in the mind there's of, a line many... of There's a line of propriety, which uh -huh. is separate from the line of legality, yeah. to be sure. And, uh, and I think it's also important to keep in mind. But I think in the minds of many Americans, especially the places where we generally think about 
um, sort of policing this kind of speech or talk about dangerous speech. Fi- shouting fire in a burning building is usually the uh, the 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 example that is brought up uh, when people talk about sort of dangerous speech versus free speech. I, and as one, we've talked a, about in the show, by the way, that it is. I don't even it, know that we've gotten into it. I think we, we have. Hinted that we, we have, and, and, and it's it, and it was and it was an abridgment of free speech rights in the first in, in the First World War mm-hmm. to saying, protest. Though, yeah. Uh, yeah, if somebody was protesting, and for those who have heard us talk about this in the past. Um, sorry to repeat ourselves, but it was a Yiddish uh, speaking uh, anti-war, First World War, uh, you know, socialist, I believe, who was handing out pamphlets and the fire in the crowded theater was the, were those pamphlets. Right. And that was that was this this brilliant thing that people say, oh, it's like shouting fire in a crowd of theater. It's like, when you cite that, you are citing somebody who is trying to abridge the free speech rights of an anti-war socialist who thought correctly, I think, that America's involvement in the First World World was dumb. And eventually and, the Supreme Court repudiated that it, notion decisively. There was a great piece in the LA Times by our uh, comrade uh, Popat, who should come on the show, Ken White, the great uh, First Amendment free speech lawyer out of California, I believe. And uh, it's about five days ago or so. And it said, I think the headline on it is hate speech is free speech. Um, in the LA Times out. last week. Yes. yes. Yeah. And, and, yeah. He bring, and he brings up like five, six, seven of the most common things that you hear about speech in these moments of stress. Yeah. And he very, very calmly dissects all of them. So go out and look look at it so you don't have to hear us. And I think that Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was the one who actually came up with that in the uh, Schenk, it was a Schenk or Sheck uh, argument. Shrek, it was the Shrek. Shrek. And, yeah. I, and, and Shrek, Shrek. I, didn't, I, I didn't want to like make a dumb thing. It was like, oh, it was the Mulan case. <laughs> Some other Disney movie that Did I- Cosby played the donkey yeah. there? No! Shrek! <laughs> now, yeah. Shrek! I think he actually uh, uh, doubled he back on that He smeared the jello. Oh, my God. <laughs> on the donkey. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Can you cut that out of the serious broadcast? You're always smearing um, jello everywhere. Wouldn't you, sir? There's a transition here I, I want to make because this is something that well, has before, consumed everybody uh, this week. Let one hand do it. Well, you're going to want to. But before you do, I want there's one more yeah? thing that oh, I want sure. to ask about here. It was a good transition. Um, I, I, I believe <laughs> you. And I hopefully hopefully, you'll, hopefully this will still fit. Um, specific ideologies and their connection to violence. I mean, that is another thing that we've heard about. And I think we've even perhaps talked about it in the context of the Charleston shooting. If not here on this podcast, I've certainly talked to other people about it. Um, And one thing that I'll get a lot is that, you know, racism is what motivated the shooter to go out and shoot these people, that that is ultimately what's responsible. That beyond just questions of whether or not you are inciting someone to violence, it's whether or not a particular system of belief or sort of belief actually lends itself to violence or ultimately ends in violence. And um, I'm going to I'm going to sort of tread onto some dangerous ground and I, my melanin force field may not be enough to protect me. Oh, God. Um, but uh, that, that always means something. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is terrible. Yeah. Um, but but in much the same way that most people find um, like racism repugnant, like and I do as well. Um, I also find um, like ideas that support or the idea of like socialism, like taking other people's things, legal plunder, um, like the the roots of it, I find pretty repugnant as well. Um, and as I've been reading like Bloodlands in recent uh, weeks, and we, we talked about the book now three shows in a row, probably maybe four. In fact, if you include the uh, the interview, um, 
couldn't help but think about like some of the sentiments there and ownership class that actually needed to be purged and needed to have their things taken from them and the extent to which uh, a sort of systematic, consistent set of beliefs about the nature of property and the nature of rights and a set of values around those things that suggest that you are due what someone else has, that there's something pernicious about that. And I find those ideas repugnant. And I actually wish that more people found them repugnant in the same way. And for me, you know, it's not like, it's not the same as reading a KKK tract when I see like someone write things that are like explicitly socialist and, and uh, talk about the proletariat and redistribution of wealth, like that sort of thing. But it's kind of close. Like the, the times where that has actually been carried out, where people have actually instituted that, where you talk about like violent revolution and overthrow of the government and taking other people's stuff. If they resist, then you what? You kill them. There's, there's a sense in which, and um, this reminds me of, um, of something that I believe it was uh, Ezra Klein sort of tweeted earlier today. Like he tweeted, it's easy to forget what a blessing it is to live in a country where politics rarely leads to violence and how fragile the blessing is. Policy itself is often violent and war being the most obvious example, but it's still important that those decisions get made nonviolently. The great gift of, gift of politics is that it gives us a way to make difficult decisions without resorting to violence to decide. This is this is true. Like it is, it is fundamentally <clears throat> different yeah. to live in Jamaica during election time and to live in New York City during election time. In Jamaica, there are criminal gangs that actually have historically aligned themselves with political but parties. But occasionally pretty awesome done, Bob Marley concerts. And done bad things. Yeah, and also then there are shooting Bob Marley, which is not nice. Yep. So that sucks. So, <laughs> still so I'm just saying, yes, great performance, but for you get shot. For political reasons. So, so I think it's worth noting that politics, like ultimately that's good, but politics itself is often not merely about whether or not to commit violence, but is about sort of the the righteous use, or at least the just use under the law of force to accomplish some ends, be it taking someone else's things or giving it to someone else. And I'm, I'm getting a little philosophical here, not can, a little, I'm getting I, a lot I, philosophical. Can I push back a tiny bit? But not a ton. Yeah, I'm, I'm making broad, yeah. abstract, sweeping points. I'm even making gestures with my arms you are. now. They're threatening um, gestures, too. Hand, uh, can, 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 can opening I, my arms like well, a let hug? Well, me, let me... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how I interpreted it. Uh, let me sharpen the point just slightly. Yeah, go for, go for it. Is that um, when you say socialism, I, I disagree with you. Because go I think it. that, you know, if you go from that to bloodlands, you should be very specific about communism. I mean, socialism... This is fair. For all of its uh, problems, uh, the, all the things that I disagree with... Uh, most of the socialist governments in the world are democratically elected. Uh, there's just a socialist instinct in a lot of places in Western Europe there's, for a variety of reasons. Let's call um, let's call it maybe democratic socialism. Yeah, democratic socialism versus you know in, in, in communism. In, sure, or, communism, and of course, aspiring com communism. Yeah, and of course, sure. communists uh, tend to. It's an important difference, Camille. Uh, yeah, I, I do think it's an important difference, but I mean, it I, is. There's, it's there's the very no, no. I, I totally understand, and I, and I wasn't talking about sort of democratic socialism, like the 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 light. The 
the lighter weight manifestation of some of these ideas, but there is the the Marxian theory of history in, so, okay, in which so there is, is supposed is to be a natural progression yeah, yeah, um, between yeah. between these No, systems. I mean, Marx considered so himself a scientist. I mean, right. he said that history was a science and that he was showing the progression of history. And, and you know, th they often have to construct it in a way. The Soviets constructed it in the sure. 20s. There has to be a capitalist period. And, you know, they had the new economic policy, which was the fake capitalist period before, before the deluge. But... A, a small, a small point there. Just to, you know, in your defense, I mean, the Soviets called themselves socialists. Uh -huh. I mean, they uh, communists often try to soften it and say we're just merely socialists. But I think the problem is, and the peop the the thing that you're really focusing on, doesn't. This is the thing that extends beyond left and right, and it gets in those kind of fuzzy corridors and um, you know the fringes, is utopianism. Mm -hmm. That's ultimately the problem, because it, it always runs screaming in the other direction when utopians have utopian ideas, because, you know, is racism, you know, more kind of inherent towards violence? Well, yeah, certain types of it are for sure, mm -hmm. because they believe, as the Nazis did, and again, as the Soviets did and for, for class reasons, that certain people must be eliminated to achieve a goal that they've decided is the best thing for the world. That's the utopian instinct that is that is incredibly damaging. Eric Hobsbawm, a very famous British Marxist historian, communist historian, gave an interview later in his life to Michael Ignatiev. And Michael Ignatiev asked him if 20, 30, 40 million people had to die, and after that, the Soviet future would have been achieved in the way that you saw it, would it have been worth it? And he said, yes. Yeah, of course. He said, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I was talking to young versions of this in the past couple of weeks, all of whom had this idea about society that their fanaticism was astonishing. They said, you know, to get to this goal, you shouldn't have speech rights. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be allowed to teach. You shouldn't be allowed, you know, to do X, Y, and Z. And if you know, if you, I saw in the eyes of these people, you know, the people that were, had, you know, flat caps on in 1919 doing all the dirty work of the, the, the Russian revolution because they were promised something great. And the other thing you do is very common in totalitarian movements is the demonization of the enemy, usually reducing them to either rats, uh, you know, insects, bacilli, something like this. And they just need to be exterminated. If we do that, then the future will be bright. No one's thought of it before. This is why it's so dangerous when people say to protect their own ideology. Well, it's never actually truly been tried. Everything that's just like all libertarianism, those, man. Well, <laughs> you know what it does, and whether it's you know libertarian, libertarian version is like there's it really actually hasn't. There's been no libertarian heads of government that that have run places for twenty years or something. You just did it though. Uh, Isn't that is that's not the same as saying it's never been tried. Well, no, it, it literally hasn't. I mean, there's certain times <laughs> if you say it's not the same thing if you say you know the Martian party has never been tried. It actually hasn't been tried because for obvious reasons because they can't get their shit together. Yeah, well, but to say that it's both, never been both, tried. Both, both things both, are, are both subject are, to that are, yeah. Did you see yeah. that Martian stripper at the national convention? Oh I just, God. you know, but fi final point. No. <laughs> like, you're surprised by this libertarian <laughs> uh, But when people say that, like, well, it's never been tried. It's always like, oh, here comes the argument again. And yeah. we laugh it off of some 21-year-old saying this. But I get much more offended by that because I think it's a dangerous you know, uh, flattening of history. It sure uh, it's somebody yeah. saying, I refuse to learn the lessons of the past because of the fanaticism of the now. 
I, I'm so fanatical about meteorology that anything you put to me, I'm going to say isn't real, didn't happen. It's very similar to Holocaust denial. And, you know, that tension, which is always funny with Nazis because they both want it to have happened and then deny that it did for a respectability reason, you know. Uh, but, you know, this is the thing about utopian ideas. And I think the guy that ratbag kid that went into the church and, and Charleston mm-hmm. probably had an idea in a long way. I don't think he thought that killing 10 people, 12 people that day was going to, to, you know, eliminate whatever he wanted to Just eliminate, which Dylan, is black people. Dylan and, Roof. And Dylan Roof. Yeah. I think that these people always believe in their delusions. It's going to precipitate a race war mm-hmm. and that race for war will, will be much like the Nazi war against the Jews that it will ultimately end in the destruction of people. So I do think it's more dangerous. A couple of uh, points just to add on, sprinkle on there. Uh, one, there's a, a, a piece, and that of course I didn't read, but I saw Ben Sass tweet about it. So I'm an expert. Um, uh, basically, an, <clears throat> a National Review look at polarization that came out about 10 days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, number like, you know, 20 years ago, 16% of us were motivated in politics primarily by hatred of the other side, and now it's 40%. Uh, and those were the numbers, and mm-hmm. wh- whatever the question is, it feels about right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just sort of look around and, and, and think about how things have progressed. How, how long ago did you say? About 10 days ago. Uh, 40 no, no. Ago. How, like what, 20 what years, I think, is the band. 20 years? Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe it's a shorter band, but it's yeah. it's it's not part- – it's definitely, you know, within living memory, things have just really gone much further in that direction. And I uh, – Seems true though, right? It seems true. It feels it, true. It, it, certainly, um, it certainly does. Uh, it it and, almost depends on the moment though because I And that I kind of sense – yeah. that kind of sense of – uh, which uh, I've written about a lot, and uh, and we talk about it on occasion the um, the collectivism of hatred towards mm-hmm. sure. uh, the out group. Sure, um, I, it, I I think it it is measurably, and it's certainly and you know uh, climactically. Um, uh, uh, higher now, and that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Another thing that it overlaps with it is, and this is something Jamie Kirchick, who's been on the show before, has talked about, and I don't always agree with Jamie, but I think there's something to this. Um, there's so much distance now, even between the end of the Cold War, Cold War is now 25 years ago, um, that, and there's so much distance between actual systems of uh, of fascism, actual systems of, of communism and totalitarianism as an existential threat that needs to be worked out constantly in the arts in uh, in discussions and nonfiction settings and magazines and stuff, yeah. totalitarianism just was the was the topic yeah. of so much of the twentieth century. Just people thinking and writing and working through stuff. It isn't anymore. Well, well it, it should well, be. It, well, it kind of is. It except is. except it's being directed at a particular target at the moment, isn't it? Like the sense that there are in fact totalitarians on the scene. In fact, there is one particular tyrant on the scene who is in charge of the United States of America and may in fact plunge us into chaos and undermine democracy and destroy the country. In fact, he's attacking the press. He's attacking the courts. He's attacking all of our institutions. The the sensibility is that the, the notion that is being, that is being drummed up in certain circles and that is deeply, a deeply held conviction of many people is that I, I there it, are in fact institutions agree, in America and people in I America. I grant all of that, and I and, are, and I I grant that, and I tell you, it's nothing like it used to be. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, that sentiment and uh, on a micro level is definitely higher, and in itself, it's it's uh, I think it's it's as worrying as it is 
uh, any kind of healthy reflex of, of worrying that we're, uh, you know, s- um, sliding into kind of some kind of authoritarianism, which we should always be worried about and on guard for always, mm-hmm. um, uh, regardless of who's in power. I mean, it's a healthy way of looking at it. But just totalitarianism and being the subject is just not how people work themselves out. On the fringes, you have people saying that Sharia law is coming into the country any yeah. minute now, and that's a totalitarian <laughs> system. And it is. If, as sure. applied in government, Sharia law- It ain't law, coming here. It, but ain't, it's, it yeah. totally ain't coming here. There's a bunch of anti-Sharia mm-hmm. Proud Boys uh, protests, you know, the other day uh, around the country. And they're like, why? Who the fuck knows? I mean, but, I, but, but, but like, that's, what, that's what I'm true, saying, let me finish my fucking point, Camille. Go wow, for it, man. What I'm saying is, is that with, <laughs> with the actual distance from anything like reality, people can indulge in the fantasy much more, which gets to your point, uh, Moynihan. You can you can say, like, Jacobi, Jacobin Magazine can, can be for, formed and discussing, Jacobin. like, we really need to go, whatever. Uh, I, <laughs> Jacobin. Whatever. Uh, the magazine Jac- from Jake Cobin. <laughs> Jacobin <laughs> Magazine. Jacobin. People can flirt. Ooh, with I love Jacobin. <laughs> <laughs> People can flirt with this shit because they haven't had to actually grapple with it in any way, shape, or form. And, and, and I think we're seeing a, a system of that on the left. And part of that is with the Trump as a totalitarian or communism just hasn't been tested. And we see it on the right in mostly kind of ethno-nationalist terms that, you know, if only we got either to the race war, but more likely if we could just control, and this is an Ann Coulter concept as well as of other people, if we could just get back our mix of like nationalities to a manageable sense, then I don't know what happens, but it's just somehow going to be a restoration of... Uh, a purification of what we're normally doing. So we can indulge because we haven't actually been there in these fantasies. And I think those fantasies are on the grow and being polarized. And it's very unhealthy because neither side has any respect in that um, for individual rights. They're both totalizing systems in their way. Uh-huh. And it is worrying. One of the things from from the days uh, in, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, and that lack of memory of the Cold War is the things that last give us a misunderstanding of what the actual culture was at the time. So we remember the captive mind. We remember darkness at noon. We remember 1984. We remember these great works of literature that were anti-totalitarian in Uh almost every way, right? But also remember that a lot of the stuff that was being produced at the time was actually pro totalitarian, pro-dictatorship. I mean, Godard's film, La Chinois, watch it, find it online. It is unbelievable. It is a celebration of Maoism. And it is the most bananas movie I've seen in a very long time. I'll be made fun of for this, but last night I watched before I went to bed a documentary on Swedish television, Swedish public television, about a theater group in Sweden Years. in the 1960s. It was just, it was on the thing and I was working and I had it on in the background. And, uh, and SVT, the state broadcaster. And so it was this thing, this celebration of these people that had a theater in Stockholm. And it was very common at the time. Like all the films in Sweden at the time were all pro Viet Cong. They were all Maoists. They were all sort of pro uh, Castro. There's a bunch of Castro films, etc. There's a bunch of these in, in 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 America too. Usually, the tenor of the arts in the well in the past hundred years, so much of it, I would say, uh, I would say a majority of it. I would probably even venture to say a large majority of it was supportive 
of shitty regimes and bad regimes. It wasn't this oppositional thing of like, well, now we're opposing Donald Trump and it's an overstatement, but in the past we used to actually oppose real dictators. Uh -huh. It's like, no, actually we were celebrating real dictators. You look at the writers conference they had in, in New York in, in the 1950s, late 40s, 50s, Soviet sponsored Lillian Hellman, all these people were very, very much apologizing for regimes that, you know, were opposed to the United States. So therefore the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And, you know, it was kind of the early um, er punk rock thing to do was to be pro-Soviet. Never go live there, never do that. While Soviets, uh, Soviet authors, Soviet mu musicians and composers were being arrested by the dozens and the hundreds if they weren't working within the system, everyone ignored that. They, they ignored that for, for, you know, most of the scope of the Cold War. And it, you know, took a lot to get to get those writers paid attention to. Havel was not loved. No. It, it, as a matter of fact, when Havel spoke in front of Congress after the fall of the who, Soviet who Union. Who is this Havel, Michael Moynihan? Havel. Yeah, 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 he's a, he's a, he was a, uh, I think he was a guy who lived in Greenpoint, Polish dude. <laughs> uh, but Havel, when he You spoke, have pierogi. Yes, I like having lots of fun times with you and write books. <laughs> right, fun boy. Uh, so it's just confused English. But he was denounced by Chomsky after he spoke to Congress. It's an as incredible a, denunciation. As a puppet of... Uh, yeah. He has a great line. Uh, as a puppet of the empire uh, who's... Uh, preparing um, uh, Czechoslovakia at the time um, for the onset of capital. And then like in parentheses, mostly Japanese. Oh, did he yeah, actually yeah, say yeah, mostly yeah, Japanese? Be mostly well, the funny Japanese thing capital. about that is the, the, forgetting totally about the Cold War is that, you know, look at the, the, um, the opinion polls and the vote totals for socialist parties in, in uh, Czechoslovakia, Czech the Czech Republic after the Cold War and look at them now. I mean, they've inflated by an enormous number in the past 20 plus years because that institutional memory of the past is gone. And that's, you know, it's not surprising. It happens everywhere. Just uh, one uh, one thing on that on all that point, when I uh, tried to move to Cuba in 1998, yeah, um, I went um, mostly so I could bone up on, on revolution and figure out who I should assassinate. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, you, for boning. you try to get as many books as you can that were written with knowledge about Cuba and you had to sift through I would say four out of five 20 to one easily of the books were just like you know why the socialist uh, approach to sports is scientifically the best sure you know? it was unbelievable yeah. I mean it was so the, the 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 imbalance was was staggering still exists staggering out there, the number of intellectuals that were objectively pro-totalitarian here and, and apologetic. It just the, the, the same thing is true, and we can move on to something else, but it's, it, the, the same thing is true, because this is nerdery times it, a thousand. It, it, but may, the it, same may, thing is it true. may well be, but I, 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 was, I was trying to get you guys to go someplace. I'll get, I'll get you. This are. is a one-sentence thing. The same yeah. thing is true. If you try to find books, and I have a particular interest in East Germany, if you try to find books in the English language about East Germany, there are maybe a hundred of them, 95 of them are sympathetic to the government of East Germany. It is so bizarre and shocking. And, and there was a, an article recently about Seamus Milne, uh, shameless bilge who used to write for the Guardian is now, <laughs> is now a, a communications director uh, for Jeremy Corbyn, the labor leader. And he wrote an intro to a book about East Germany, which um, was somebody dug up in the past couple of days at The Spectator in the UK. And it was this intro about, you know, it was pretty good. Everyone had jobs and there was equality mm. for women and that kind of stuff. It it persists uh -huh. and it, it persists in the academy in a way that just really 
boggles my mind. Nevertheless, it, it persists. It persists. And it, yeah, that's good. That actually reminds me of the Sessions hearing. Um, but uh, yeah, we can we can back away from this. I, I think there's there's more here that we will almost certainly return to later. I mean, one one question that perhaps I will pose and, and we will just let linger is whether or not it's appropriate to to ask questions about the nature of this kind of to return to the sort of the original theme here. Um, extremists on the left or the right who will actually engage in violence that is in some way, shape or form politically motivated, Um, whether or not it makes sense at any point in time to take stock of the number of people that are doing it or the, the level at which it's happening or the pitch, the tenor the, of the hysteria on on either side, so whether or not measure. it makes it's, it, it's, the, it's incredibly difficult to measure. But it is worth noting that it does in fact happen on both sides. And I'm not drawing any sort of equivalence at all, happens except libertarians except too. for saying that it happens on both sides. Sure, it can it can cert, it can happen it can happen anywhere is per, is perhaps the point that I'm trying to make. Um, but I remember earlier before we started recording, I was we were talking about like the Charleston shooting. And I asked you, Matt, about people who are motivated by a sense that there is an injustice being perpetrated by police. And I mean, I think we forget that the 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 sniper who shot during a Black Lives Matter pro- protest, um, shooting numerous police officers and injuring some other folks, was a month after the Charleston shooting. And that we've actually seen a number of these things happening. It's, it's clearly, it's a statistical blip in terms of the total number of people that are shot and killed. But there have been sort of acts of violence. And I, I don't know, I mean, that's maybe a question for another day. Um, and I think some of the historical stuff that we were chatting about is actually quite interesting, especially when it comes to the the way in which younger voters today um, relate to politicians who have perhaps said very nice things about totalitarian dictators, some of which have done their horribleness in within living memory, i.e. the last 15 odd years. Including um, Bernie Sanders, by it, the way, who, well, has, who yes. has praised Castro and Ortega as uh, Ortega's dictatorship in, sure. in Nicaragua. And I was actually talking about Corbyn just then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but sure. it's certainly applicable to Sanders, who is often compared to Corbyn um, and to Perhaps the two of them should also be compared to Donald Trump. Um, but you were going to offer a segue earlier. I was. I suspect I, it might be in the direction. Well, it's still go. in the same direction. And it's this news story that's um, kind of a fake news story, but it's one that's kind of occupied. Well, that's what we do here. We love fake news. Well, I mean, not in the sense of fake news. It's 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 one of these stories that is created by Twitter. Hmm. So always keep in mind that like 0.01% of the population actively uses Twitter and journalists can kind of whip themselves up into a froth about other journalists saying things on Twitter and therefore it becomes a news story. It's one of the most annoying habits of journalists. And and, and this is the kind of story about uh, dangerous ideas and having dangerous ideas that number one might offend somebody on primetime television and number two might give people other ideas. And this was the criticism of Megyn Kelly for having Alex Jones on her new NBC program. Of course, nobody has seen this. They've only seen the tease and everyone has gone crazy about it. It airs on Sunday night and saying, how could you do this, Megyn Kelly, um, and have this guy who specifically denies Sandy Hook, which 
Alex Jones does and doesn't. He tries to play both sides on this. I had a conversation with him about it, and he and I and I hit him really hard on it, and he backed off a little bit. But we didn't use that in the in the piece that I did, not because it was offensive to the victims of uh, uh, the families of the victims of Sandy Hook, but just because it was too bananas. It was just too Alex Jones being crazy. I mean, I could find it and put it up online if someone would want to see my exchange with him about about Sandy Hook. But this response from people, I don't believe, number one, would have been as vociferous and as angry and slightly unhinged from some people had the interviewer not been Megyn Kelly. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the bigger things. If Charlie Rose was doing it, I mean, he's been on The View. He's been on, you know, Andrew Neal's show on the BBC. He's been on Piers Morgan's show on CNN. But we deny that. Alex Jones, whose YouTube channel has over a billion views, a billion views, and he's talked to the president on multiple occasions. The president has said nice things about him. You didn't know, you're great. Ro you're... Didn't Roger Stone guest host? On all the time. He, yeah. he guest hosts all the time. This man is a force in the culture. Unfortunately, he's a very, you know, malignant force in the culture. But to know him, to understand him and to subject him to the scrutiny of someone like Megyn Kelly, who I, I haven't seen the piece. I talked to some people at NBC um, and recently in the past couple of days who were quite proud of the piece and said that she does a good job. These are not people that are, you know, Megyn Kelly's normal allies. I mean, they're people within the organization. They say, you know, wait and see. But I wonder what you guys think about this, because if you get ideas out there that it's a very old man kind of thing, too. We don't want them on NBC because NBC, we once at Newsweek, we once ran a, a cover story by Neil Ferguson in the 2012 election that hit Obama really hard. God, I forgot you worked there. Yeah. And it was a big it was there was this big tumult after. And I remember saying to Tina Brown that, do you think this would happen if the exact same piece with the exact same set of facts, which people were, were contesting, were run in National Review, were run in an opinion magazine, because we are an opinion magazine. And I think that the conclusion that was come to is that Newsweek has felt at that point, you know, it's changed now, it was an American, it was like almost a public works. It was like, this was an American institution and you shouldn't have things like that in this magazine. People have that sense about NBC, it seems, because this stuff's out there everywhere. Mm -hmm. You can't avoid Alex Jones if you've ever seen that channel on the right on YouTube that's recommending videos to you. You constantly get them. If you've ever looked at something goofy and wacky on, on YouTube, and we all do, this sense that we have to protect people is also condescending to viewers. No, Swedish Marxist like television programs are not is not wacky, Michael. That's no, they're great. There's the Vilsi Palmkokum, which is my my biggest question to you is: Do you feel a little bit of uh, of hate envy uh, among Megyn Kelly? You profile Alex Jones very well on Vice News. You got none of this. Yeah, got none of this torrent of like, my God, I think who, our own website attacked uh, NBC for this. Yeah, they did. I <laughs> well, is, isn't, and I, well, I had to correct them and say, can you watch the fucking show? <laughs> uh, you know, it's a pretty good piece. But actually, actually, it was just a headline. The actual piece was was just recounting the 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 kind of controversy about it. But the headline seemed a bit weird. I, you know, who knows who writes these headlines? But um yeah, I mean, do I do have in in some ways some envy because we got something that very few people did get, which was uh, access. And he was not giving it at the time, and he really hadn't before. 
um, maybe one or two people, but we got access with the camera to his facility. I spent the day with him and I got a, a very, you know, good understanding of what Alex Jones was doing and why he was doing it and who he was. And I think, I hope that along with the goofiness and the weirdness and the funny bits in it, that that came through in the piece. But if anyone ever told me, you shouldn't do it. This man's hugely important. Talks to President Trump. Don't put him on television. Who am I protecting? Yeah. You know, and now it's kind of, you know, it sound like a lefty now. It's, it's kind of ruled by the corporate sponsors, too. I mean, all these like, you know, J.P. Morgan pulled out of NBC. Well, they, they tend to pull out after after the hysteria has begun, interestingly, which most of the time. But they you commented hear about, on it, too, and said, sure, we're appalled. Yeah, yeah. You but know, we're horrified this is, because uh, of what it's doing to the families. Yeah. You know what was horrifying for the families? Their children were fucking murdered. Yeah. Brutally murdered. I do not in any way, in any sense, for even a second, say to those a few parents that have come out and said, this is painful. I, there's, n- I, I can't imagine. Yeah, but that's what that's where through. a lot of the that's but, where a lot of the concern is coming. Well, from they're hanging they it on that. Well, I'm, I'm I just think it's cruel I and think, horrible to hang it on them. I, I I I, look, I understand their their objection. Yeah, I agree I with do. the I agree with the instinct. I mean, I think I think the fact of the matter is that that there's two things with Megyn Kelly. I mean, the first is she used to be at Fox, and Fox is loathed uh, in various circles, and that that former association follows her to NBC and is part of the baggage that she will have to carry. Um, she also just did an interview with Vladimir Putin. Um, which was uh, widely criticized in many circles as being a little uh, powder puff, um, not particularly staunch, uh, primarily because her genitalia is not more uh, penis shaped. Uh, I, I kid. <laughs> I, you know. That's, that's, presuming. that's that, you're, you're right. I am presuming. Or you don't know that. Yeah. Um, and uh, look, uh, that was a joke, too. <laughs> no, I well, know. You didn't actually. Yeah, I just yeah. wanted to get it's that. Out you there. got it there. I'm I just so want to hear about Black Santa. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. but the, um, <laughs> but, but look, I mean, if the, if the, there is a sensitivity about public outrage, and if in fact there is uh, an otherizing and a sensibility that right now, today, we have political, factionalism that is at a particularly intense point or it's it's particularly intense right now anyways um i i understand i suspect why corporate sponsors big corporate brands that are advertising on national publications are trying to back away from things that they think might tarnish them in some way shape or form or be or i'm not saying it's a good thing i'm just saying i understand the dynamic of what's happening here. And I'm not certain I'd place the blame with the corporate sponsors first. I will say that, look, NBC, Fox, CBS, uh, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, all of these companies can afford to continue to put out particular content absent sponsorship on a particular episode. Like they could do that. Why do you think J.P. Morgan does it though? I mean, J.P. Why no did they one, back away? No one is going to remember this in a week. Uh-huh. J.P. Morgan is, you know, only it seems to me only grandstanding in a way because they came out with a statement that otherwise people would not know that J.P. Morgan advertised during. <laughs> I mean, that I, I think you want to you want to demonstrate that you yeah you want to demonstate that you're good and virtuous and and that's part of the reason why people pull back and and look I I think ultimately the instinct that there are certain people whose ideas are so dangerous, so retrograde that we should not talk to them in public 
is a broadly shared belief. It is something that one can almost understand in a lot of context. Like you shouldn't, we shouldn't be screwing around with Holocaust deniers on, on channel five is the sensibility that a pl- that plenty of people. But have. if the president was a Holocaust denier, would you have the leading Holocaust denier on a program, somebody who influenced them, who seems like they're getting their talking points from them. We once did a video mm-hmm. of matching up things that Alex Jones said and that, you know, Donald Trump said on the campaign trail a couple of days later, uh-huh. probably filtered through somebody like Roger Stone. But I think at that point, it is definitely important to do so. so and I would totally agree with that. And, I, and this is the difference, that there is a difference between elevating someone who has a very small following and who say is having a conference in DC with several hundred people, maybe 200 people, Richard Spencer, um, and suggesting that he is somehow the bellwether for the Trump campaign, that this is happening because of Donald Trump and drawing a connection between the two and elevating this person and giving them a station that they don't really deserve, writing exhaustive 20 or 30 page histories of who this person is, profiling them, turning them into uh, uh, a cultural force that they might not have otherwise been, and facing down someone like Alex Jones and asking him questions in the public sphere. And it's it's funny, uh, I was, as I was thinking about this particular, like no platforming that's taking place, um, there's a, a John Stuart Mill quote that, that came to mind, um, and it's um, about the peculiar evil of silencing expression of opinion um, and the notion that when you do that, when you crowd out people who have I- particular ideas, that it injures both people who have the right idea about something and people who have the wrong idea about something. If you have, in fact, the wrong idea and you don't know it, you are foregoing the opportunity to exchange error for truth is the is the phrase that's used there. Um, and in like fashion, you are also losing out um, on the great benefit of demonstrating this imperfection that exists. Um, and the, the bad idea simply goes unchallenged in the public sphere. And it is certainly possible that when Michael Moynihan or Megyn Kelly um, has a, a public encounter with someone like Alex Jones, people are exposed to his ideas that might not otherwise have been. It's possible. Um, sure. But it seems to me that it is far more important that there is this contest of ideas um, and that especially for someone who is having an impact on the culture that you are facing them down routinely and forcefully um, and where they deserve to to be respected. You're not sort of exaggerating their faults and where they are completely wrong, where the, the perspectives that they are offering are in fact misinformed, that you're calling them on that forcefully rather than trying to ignore them, which is something that we've seen as well with uh, members of the Trump administration we've talked about here. Yeah, um, I mean, we past. have data on this too. I mean, just basic stuff. If you think of places where Mein Kampf is banned has more Nazis than you'd expect, more Nazis than I think the United secret, States has. Secret knowledge. You, If you go to places where hate speech is banned, uh, we don't have a lack of hate speech, and depending on how you define that. If you go to a place where Holocaust denial is banned, which is basically throughout Western Europe, and I get the idea that they think that there's a special duty in a place that um, was, you know, both the architects of the Holocaust and the helpers of the Holocaust in a lot of occupied countries, that 
that there's less Holocaust denial. It's not true. Mm -hmm. It's simply not true. You cannot legislate bad ideas away. You cannot hide bad ideas under the carpet and expect that nobody's going to see them. If they don't see Alex Jones on NBC, I mean, who watches NBC and Megyn Kelly's show? Young people, who are the people that are mostly Alex Jones listeners, they tend to find this stuff on YouTube. They listen to it. If they're going to be convinced by that, the response to it is not to try to destroy it. I mean, try to debate it and destroy it through debate, but not to try to destroy it through, you know, silence, through legislation, through criminal charges. Then you have a bigger problem of education. If you look at people who have, you know, a closer relationship to conspiracy theory, if you look at a lot of parts of the Arab world, for instance, where conspiracy theory proliferates, look at the school systems there. Look at what's taught in those books that actually precipitates those thoughts where Jews are responsible for most everything. Therefore, when you hear the conspiracy theory on the internet, it resonates in a sharper way. It's not about burying it. It's about, you know, the systemic problem of how people are being educated and what their base level of knowledge is. If their base level of knowledge is what it is in the American school districts across this country, which for all their problems tend to inoculate us, uh, you know, more so than other countries, not entirely for sure, against really, 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 really repulsive ideas, which, you know, Holocaust denial, if you look at these tables in, you know, Egypt is like through the roof. You know, if, if you look at the Palestinian territories, it's through the roof. You know, if you look at Germany, it's a little higher than you'd expect it to be. And in the U.S., it's not it's not that much. Conspiracy theory also always uh, flourishes in places where uh, or in populations where they feel like they have no uh, impact or control or ability to influence the flow of uh, events. Hmm. So, uh, you know, it it's more likely to have conspiracy theory in France than in the United States, not because French are dumber, um, hmm. but in terms of, you know, how, how does the world run? It runs largely be, you know, as much as anything else because of what America wants to do. And so you already, you don't have control over that if you are France, uh, oh. generally speaking. So you can nurture. There's a lot of 9-11 conspiracy stuff. Bestseller, Terry Best, Maison. This uh, book was a bestseller. In- which yes, still will get my blood boiling. A uh, little observation on this. Going to get a little confessional here, and I'm sorry for it in advance. But um, when I covered the Ralph Nader campaign in uh, 2000, um, which was a high watermark for a third party, non-reform party, certainly the Green Party campaign, and you know, obviously had some impact on the 2000 election here. <laughs> um, I was doing it for an outfit called WorkingForChange.com. Uh, it was a, 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 a telephone company that had a political. Uh, division, uh, like a director to figure out how their politics were because they wanted to round up phone bills and then pay it to do good lefty things and whatever. They decided to cover the election uh, and I did it. And um, from the very first press conference that I went to of his, which is just like me, some lefty journalist with a great ponytail and like the local AP reporter. And that's how these things always happen. Um I watched uh, Ralph Nader, who's, of course, a great American and a very eccentric uh, weirdo and stuff. Um, in addition to using uh, uh, versions of the word corporate or corporation, uh, I think more than 75 times in a, like in one hour, just like he's so obsessed with the C word. Um, he said a bunch of stuff that I agreed with and a bunch of stuff that it was clear he had never been or hadn't been much exposed to people to say, I don't know, dude. Yeah. 
that sounds kind of crazy. So I spent a lot of my time um, covering, admittedly for a lefty publication, challenging his ideas about trade, about race, about immigration, about all kinds of stuff where I, I felt like he hadn't been, well, you know, America is effecting a brain drain against the third world countries, which is why we should stop allowing Indian doctors to come here. And we should, you know, have people stay in their own home countries. Hmm. So we're not stealing from them. That Bernie Sanders ah, so it's, said banned, that? it's banned for India, not for American workers. Yeah, uh, and, and also yeah, uh, yeah. for American workers, but Both. a bunch of stuff yeah. like that. So my coverage was like that. And I walked out of that um, uh, campaign um, with this strong feeling of um, uh, that on the margins of American political discourse, and it's not that far in the march. I mean, Ralph Nader is not that far on the margin. He's a very influential, certainly one of the most hundred influential private American citizens of the 20th century. Sure. Objectively. Um, right. And and he sort of represents a progressive left, if idiosyncratic, sort of independent ideal. Um, but a lot of those ideas don't get tested because mm -hmm. no one until recently and until a few blue cities, people who really believe that stuff don't usually get to power. They don't usually control the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. It's again, things are different now with Bernie Sanders and with our uh, other things going on. But my response out of that was to focus a lot on that world because I felt like it needed more sunlight. I was more fluent with it. I knew those people. I've lived among those people for a long time. I could argue with them and have interesting conversations with them. And then coming out of 9-11, I got a little bit obsessed with them because I saw their uh, the way that they looked at world events through the lens of America is kind of like the original sin uh, country. It's the great Satan, sort of Chomskyite foreign policy that it made me a little purple-eyed and to lose the plot about who holds power. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always toggling between this, and this is true of Alex Jones and everywhere else. Like, it is important uh, if you want to have the project of how did Trump win? What is this Trump phenomenon? You have to engage with Alex Jones. If you don't, you're just not doing that journalism. Um, yeah. And so you have to deal with it. Uh, at some point, though, you can spend all your time chasing after the weird beliefs of marginal people and you're losing the plot of who the person what uh, who wields power, what they are doing. And there is no right answer to it. It's we're, just we're, and we're often judging these things from the perspective of stupid people. I mean, we're letting stupid people rule the day when it comes to conversations about should Alex Jones be on Megyn Kelly's show? I mean, to your point, and I think that you would, you'd probably agree with this, me engaging with the ideas of Alex Jones me specifically engaging with the ideas of Noam Chomsky. You mean you, mean you Michael Moynihan? Me, okay. yeah. yeah. Yes. I, just personally. Uh -huh. um, maybe I am a stupid person. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> but me engaging he with all that stuff. Off. Not yeah, possible. Not, I mean, I mean, I mean, come on. Let's, let's be serious. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's be honest. I mean, you know, you know, El McPherson doesn't say like, "Oh, I'm not hot." You know, like, come on. It's a joke. It's a joke. Because she's a model. You uh -huh. know, that's what she does. For, yeah, yeah. Is it, can we cut this out in post? No, Richard. Uh, fuck. Uh, was, forget it. <laughs> no, I, I, I have gotten more from engaging. I have learned more from engaging with Chomsky's ideas. For instance, I wrote something a long time ago at a think tank in Sweden yeah. about Chomsky, which was like a 40 page report when he got this uh, honorary doctorate in Sweden. And I didn't learn a lot from him. I learned a lot from engaging with his ideas and kind of interrogating those ideas. And sure, I'm, I'm sure there's some things that I took away from him. I'm not saying he's not a dumb guy and I think he's just wrong and kind of a fanatic about a couple of issues and he refuses to see anything but this narrow channel that he exists in. And I think that's bad. And I think that's just not good for scholarship. It's not history. It's polemic. But these crazy people, I don't 
in any, I don't compare Alex Jones to Chomsky, but you know, Chomsky has sent some, some things that I think are really reprehensible. Alex Jones well, didn't invent or master an entire academic discipline. For oh time. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not talking about his <laughs> linguistics. I mean, yeah. but I, I think that's healthy and we can't have the, you know, sort of rule of maybe the majority of people who just take these things as gospel. And then, you know, it becomes something that they spout at dinner parties or they challenge their friends on. There are people out there that I think their political outlook, their kind of idea of, you know, in Chomsky's case, America's role in the world came from reading Chomsky, being skeptical, reading other people, challenging things that they read and say, well, is that true? I'm going to go read an entire book about the Cambodian genocide, which, you know, when I first read Chomsky is kind of what I did. And I, I, it's not all, you know, an unalloyed negative that goofy people are out there. When I read David Irving, sure, I sure. actually got a David Irving book in college, not knowing who David Irving was. It was actually in the school library. And thankfully it was there. And my, prof my professor, who was my advisor too, said, you do know about David Irving. And this is before, I mean, it's about the time he turned to a real nutty Holocaust scenario. He was a kind of a respected historian that maybe was a little too sympathetic to some people outside, but he was great uh, with documents. He dug all this stuff out, commonly, commonly understood about, about Irving. But reading Irving made me understand this stuff in a lot better way, but not because of Irving. I mean, he mined a bunch of really good stuff that I went and read a bunch of other people when my, when someone was there to tell me, I would have been able to find that quite easy if there was the internet at the time there wasn't, said this stuff is poisonous and horrible. And I said, oh, I, I, I actually kind of see what you're saying now. I wasn't seeing it because I didn't come in with that equipment. Mm -hmm. And then I read a bunch of other stuff. So there is a positive thing about reading crazy people. And, well, and in, in addition, with Nader, I'm sure with Chomsky, but certainly of some people on the margins uh, in times of broad centrist agreement on terrible things hmm. will be the only people saying, why do you have marijuana illegal? Right. Um, you know, and, and which was definitely the case in, in 2000 and, and, and elsewhere. So the political margins are also where you get some of the only uh, kind of brave sanity in a lot of places that takes the, you know, major sure, center sure. to some, catch up with 25, fringe, 50 fringe years idea, later. Or at least seemingly fringe idea at that time anyways. Um, the, the, one, the one last thing I'd say about this is while I'm broadly supportive of engaging people on these public stages, uh, people with fringe ideas who, who uh, might not, might be somewhat dangerous perhaps, um, I do wonder about um, the sort of responsibility of journalists who decide to do this sort of thing. I mean, there are certainly some who like just, they bring Richard Spencer on and they're, and they're grandstanding. They never bother to do any research. They don't know anything about where Richard Spencer has spoke or, or what he actually believes or the things he said in different places. Um, and, they get into the square with this guy and he just knocks their head off. Um, and I'm thinking, thinking about Roland Martin, who there's this video of him talking to Richard Spencer, who's just like dancing circles around him. And part of it is because of Roland Martin's own uh, backwards <laughs> perspectives uh, about race and politics, uh, which he he's trying to, to 
articulate in some way that doesn't sound a hell of a lot like Richard Spencer's own <laughs> ideas, um, which he gets into a little trouble there. But then I, I recently saw an exchange with uh, Jared Taylor um, or listened to it and on something called Uncomfortable with Amana Nawaza uh, for ABC News. And it was clear from that exchange, at least to me listening, that if she knew much about what he wrote or believed, um, she just forgot it before they had their exchange. And again, it's one of those things where these people just come off looking really good by outclassing you. Um, and if you are, you know, responsible, thoughtful journalist who who believes that these people are awful and terrible, but you've never bothered to read their work at any at a, in, in any way, shape or form. And granted, there's a lot to read and there's a hell of a lot of news to cover. But damn it, you got to try a little bit. Um, I, I get perturbed when I see um, the way people talk about um, Charles Murray, for example, um, and The Bell Curve, which now is this just notorious book, which people presume is about race and IQ. Um, but it's actually a book about like IQ and the heritability of IQ and various ways in which IQ may or may not be real. And the racial component of it is quite small, even though the controversy is mostly about this. It's a very long book. I suspect that most people have never read it. I've like tried to pick through it on different occasions and I've read some of Charles Murray's other work. Um, but it's clear to me that plenty of people who talk about it, who protest him and say, you can't come on this campus, have not talked about it. And it's, it's interesting, again, um, now, not only because he's recently been protested on campuses, but because of this exchange that he had um, uh, with Sam Harris on Sam Harris's podcast after some of these protests. Um, and the fact that there has been a bit of a public response um, from folks at Vox, for example, pushing back on the way that they feel he mischaracterized um, both um, Sam Harris and uh, Charles Murray, mischaracterized certain elements of the science. Um, and I won't get into the specifics but of that's the, good. Of I'm the criticism. I'm glad that that debate's happening. Well, th that debate is happening, but what's interesting is it doesn't really seem like there is a, a reaching across to have for Sam to have the conversation with the folks at Vox. Mm. Um, and that is, that is a little, I prefer, I would prefer that that conversation was happening. I mean, Sam was having a conversation with Charles in, in public, so to speak. So as to demonstrate that, look, this guy is not radioactive. I'm talking to him and even agreeing with him in some specific ways. And you'd have to go listen to the podcast. Um, there's stuff Doesn't I disagree Sam with. Harris radioactive? In it. Uh, there are ways in which he's radioactive as well. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, but again, I mean, any sentence that begins with Sam Harris and Charles Murray, uh -huh. I, start, I start thinking about baseball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam Harris was not always radioactive. He had a book called Letter to a Christian Nation in the mid-2000s during the Bush administration. And he was the darling of, of a lot of people. And then he, uh, like Hitchens and Daniel Dennett and uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, you know, people realized that he treated every religion with the exact same level of and measure of contempt. Mm -hmm. And that included Islam. So that, that actually uh, put Harris out of the out of the sort of polite company circle. But to your point, I think one final thing, and I always worry that I've maybe said this on the show before, but if, you know, who cares? But I think it's, re it's probably, I, I, probably worth it. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, it's pretty, put that in the bingo thing. But, you know, when you see people go into interviews, this is the big mistake that interviewers often make. And the mistake is that knowing that you're morally correct 
doesn't mean you can beat somebody who's wrong. Yeah. So, you know, if you've seen films about the Holocaust, if you've taken a college course, you know that the Holocaust happened. You've seen those, you know, the, the film Death Mills that Billy Wilder made after the war and just, you know, bodies stacked like cordwood. It's all true. You know it's true. I do, too. If you go into an interview with David Irving with that moral certitude, with that knowledge, that sort of broad knowledge that everyone agrees on this, David Irving will beat you in an argument. He will beat you in a debate. The Holocaust still happened, but you just lost because you went into that. And it reminded me because of the Richard Spencer thing. People go into these uh, say like, you know, I it's so clear that I'm right about this which in most of the cases is true, you know, something like Richard Spencer, but you go in there so woefully underprepared. And I've seen this with Milo Yiannopoulos, people like, I, I can't remember, it was ABC interviewing him. And he, he's re reading these quotes to Milo and Milo responds and says, yeah, so what? I, you know, this is by, and, and he was so stunned by it, the mm -hmm. ABC interviewer. And he said, well, you're just a jerk. <laughs> there you, it you is. just you just want you, there you just it is. Lost, You've lost Milo won. Yeah. It doesn't mean Milo's right and it doesn't mean that you're wrong, but you did lose that. And I see that so much of this this kind of moral certitude about these things and oftentimes I mean, more often than not, I agree with the person and their position going in, mm -hmm. but just because you are so sure of yourself does not mean that the person who has the fringe idea won't beat the ever-loving shit out of you <laughs> in a debate. And this is the thing that people often misunderstand. David Irving can win a debate and still be wrong about the yeah. Holocaust. And, and it kind of goes in the other direction, too, if uh, people are making an affirmative uh, debate, and we saw this with uh, Camille's performance at the Soho Forum, you assume racism is bad, I'm against racism, I'm good, I'm going to win the debate. Right, you know what I'm going to say. So yeah. you're making the debate that, you know, colleges are racist. Um, it don't actually have to sift through the empirical data that people have made measuring whether people who go to college, including the black people, find oh, wow. their... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I'm actually going to defend Matt here and say, cut that out. Of my yeah. <laughs> uh, find that they're racist or not. You don't go through that process because you feel so right. Yeah. No, you, you, you're you should, not ready for that. You should maybe check the poll, the polling to the extent it's available. I, I'm Literally reminded of uh, didn't know the polling on existed. the question. Yeah. that the guy was there. That's to a challenge argue. for him. Uh, <laughs> I'm reminded of an exchange I had with uh, Chris Hedges like some years back. It was like uh, 2014, September of 2014. For reason, actually, I was out with Jim at um, some flood. It was like flood Wall Street. So it's a uh, end capitalism, save the planet, the environment sort of thing, something like that. And I'm remembering, you know, Chris and I having this exchange and it was, it was, it was spirited and interesting at the time, like in the midst of the conversation, I wasn't sure if I was like winning or losing this contest. I knew we were talking and it was a, a, a spirited exchange there are all sorts of points that he was making that one would have to sort of set aside and just try to get to the main thing, which is always a challenge for me. I like to chase the white rabbit, which is how we ended up with that lost episode. Racist. But there is one point at which he didn't use an ad hominem 
to try to defuse the uh, opponent's assault. But he did say, well, let's talk about, you know, African-Americans in this country and the way that they've been treated. Just completely disconnected from like everything else that was going on. But I thought Says to my white guy in a trench well, coat, <laughs> I thought I thought to myself, that must work really well for you in other contexts. But sure. Why don't we do that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it doesn't matter what you say. Um, I'm, I'm certain that I can I can find uh, some sort of response for it, um, not, that, not that, because of my yeah. melanin, but because I because I am somewhat expert in these matters, uh, at least wow. as compared to most people. A lot of that, that is one of the I mean, things. this is just this is just true. I mean, I, I I know more about that that than than most people. I don't even know more Chris about Hedges. Everything. Yeah, well, apparently. <laughs> but then that's one of the things is that race is one of these things that you don't. There's a series of things that you don't interrogate. Yeah, you, ne- um, you never you never bother to think no, about. No, I mean, people just it, you start from a level where everybody accepts a premise uh-huh. that might not be a premise you should accept. Right. Um, police I, police out here killing black people every day. This is fine. This is this is straightforward, and it's been asserted any number of times, and it's just not true. I, I thought that something interesting was that every person I talk to in a story that I'm doing uh, now. Uh, which uh, should run tomorrow night. If it doesn't run tomorrow night, it'll be on Monday, but I'm pretty sure it's running tomorrow night on Evergreen College. Um, But one of the things from everybody on every side of this particular issue says, and I noticed that everything in the media that is a hot button issue always has this um, element about uh, death threats. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about here? Yeah, yeah. Everything's everything. Well, he's getting death threats. Getting death. I, no, no one ever dies, by the way. It's just a lot of this thing of death threats. And no one ever asks, like, what were the threats? Can I see the threats? You know, can you show me this, that, or the other? I mean, the case of Evergreen, there was somebody who called into the college. Um, they didn't actually. They called 911, which, you know, said, I'm going to come and shoot everybody with a 45 uh, or a 44 Magnum which I don't know how you're going to shoot everyone on campus with something that holds six rounds, but and also enough recoil to, yeah, well to also referred shoulder. to it as evergreen university, uh, which is clearly somebody not from the region and didn't, it doesn't mean that it's not a real threat. They shut down the campus, which I think was the right decision to do. Um, but that was the one, that's the one thing that is, that it has made everyone want to shut down free speech and to stop X, Y, and Z. But everybody you talk to on every side of this, and I'm being as ecumenical as I can, because it is on every side of this, is that we're getting death threats. What does that even mean these days? Does anyone actually stop and say, you know, uh, is it a kid on YouTube who's a member of 4chan who has a fucking Sammy Hagar headset on playing, you know, online video games, who like, you know, types with one hand as he's like killing people. And, you know, what, I don't even know what a video game is. I was going to, I was going to mention a video game. <laughs> no idea. Mortal Kombat 12. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. In Super Mario Brothers. Huh. Uh, and those, those are possibly things. Sure. Um, you know, there's no level, there's no threat assessment in this, at least the idiotic DHS stuff had like red, bleak, green and, 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 uh, and yellow. And there was some like, that's eh, kind of serious, super serious, not really serious. <laughs> this is just like, everybody gets death threats all the time. And I think coming to think of it that I have two. That if people have said, like, I hope you fucking die, you piece of shit. Well, we got death threats at Reason because of your fucking Draw Muhammad contest idea. Well, but you, you ever hear me bitch about it? No. I never talk about it. Like, yeah. there, yeah, the FBI came and they had some chatter from Pakistan. And the no, that's of, as far as it's gone. I mean, ever. Like, uh, in, never in, wrote about that. Never said that. I don't, like, I just don't think that stuff is serious. You have to be vigilant about it. But, you know, the death threat is easy to make. 
in 2017. Yeah. Yeah. You should be raped. You should be killed. You should be That's lynched. Nice to say about me. It's not, I mean, oh, we're still on the radio? No. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, there's, we're, still, um, we're still doing this somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I just like, I don't, I, I hear it so much. I tweeted something, I wrote a column, and I got all these threats. You know, the internet is one interconnected web of threats, and uh, you have to treat them with different measures of And did you report that threat? At, was it so threatening that you told sure. someone else? Did sure. you uh, tell the authorities? Well, look, I mean, the F- the, 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 in the Evergreen case, um, we contacted the FBI, um, and, and I think it was kicked back to local uh, law enforcement, which hmm. kind of tells you something, I think. I mean, we'll see. But if someone makes a call to 911, the authorities can trace them. It doesn't matter if they're using voiceover, like like VOIP, or if they're using Skype, they're using some cutout, They'll, they can find them. They can. They're very good at this stuff. And, you know, who knows? Do you find that it's somebody within the movement that is, you know, creating uh, a situation that is advantageous to their point of view? I don't know. It's happened before. Is it some person just an idle threat? Who knows? But we treat them all with the same gravity, which I don't think is useful. And it also, the reason it bothers me so much is that it's most frequently deployed to try to tamp down on speech. Yeah. So, anyway. Well, we, uh, we've we been going for a little while. Um, maybe it's worth acknowledging we do know that there was a testimony this week, Jeff Sessions, Talking to uh, talking to the investigators on Capitol Hill who were interested in the Russia conspiracy. Um, I don't know that we need to get into that. I, I think in the past we've talked about these testimony, these exchanges, and the fact that partisans tend to see them uh, in whatever way they like. There might be some interesting issues for us to unpack here at some later date uh, with respect to. Jeff Sessions effectively kind of sort of invoking executive privilege, yeah, that was fine. Um, which is which is interesting. Um, the uh, Kamala Harris um, senator, Kamala Harris, I guess I only said it that way because she's black and female and I just wanted to disrespect her and I can't help it. Microaggression. Um, but Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, see, I did it again, um, was uh, interrupted while she was having an exchange, particularly heated exchange uh, with Mr. Sessions, which was also um, noteworthy. Um, I, uh, I was talking to Kennedy last night and, and I think the, the observation I offered there was, was something along the lines of, you know, Jeff Sessions may be a, a very nice gentleman in, in person. If you know him, I don't, <laughs> I don't know him. Um, but as a Senator and now as attorney general, I think he is deplorable and miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are plenty of things about him that are awful. Um, I also don't think he's Jason Bourne. Um, and it might be useful for us to talk about some of the things that he's doing that are genuinely awful, um, like pursuing, uh, an expansion of the drug war, um, and not even just an expansion of the drug war, like effectively trying to undo battles that have been fought and that seem to be won. Cracking down on medical marijuana he's trying to do right now. It's bizarre. Like this is not even just like misguided policy. Um, I don't think he's doing the 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 work of big tobacco. And so much of our politics is about attributing motivations to people and 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 saying, well, the reason he's doing that it's the corporations. He's 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 helping the private prisons by by well maybe he just has really bad ideas, um, and bad ideas for reasons that we just cited. I think ought to be confronted for their badness. 
won't say much about the testimony um, beyond that. Jeff Sessions, there are plenty of reasons to to be displeased with him as a uh, as a member of government. Yeah, seconded, so. seconded, and it, it again reminds us of how disappointing uh, were the uh, confirmation hearings to challenge him on the ideas when everyone was just trying to like pin the donkey on the racist kind yeah. of thing, uh, as opposed to looking at his horrifyingly bad views, retrograde views in the drug war and civil asset forfeiture reform and all this kind of stuff. And the other thing that was worrisome about Jeff Sessions was underlined, uh, if subtly, at the um, at the uh, hearings this week, which is that he's a very important person, a cog in the Trump political machine, uh-huh. an early adopter, um, it crystallizes a lot of it was like uh, the first person like with any sort of esteem on on in Washington to get behind the Trump campaign yeah and he and he's the font of uh DC centric anti-immigration sentiment yeah so has has these kind of bad ideas is important and as such where his uh, uh positioning is vis-a-vis Trump puts in a very weird position um, as attorney general, that he's going to be kind of like what Eric Holder was to Barack Obama as kind of a bag man, uh, someone who's doing uh, uh, helping out his friend. Uh, do, you me- do you remember when uh, <laughs> during the campaign there is this hilarious line of argument that Bernie Sanders was great because he's like he's never he's he, he can't be bought. He's always had the same ideas. He's stuck <laughs> to exactly like that was a virtue is the same thing is true with Jeff Sessions. When he was attorney general in, in Alabama, he put to forward a, a, a proposal that didn't go through that would a second time marijuana dealer would be would be, uh, you know, eligible for the death penalty. And people are like, I can't believe actually you said I can't believe what I'm saying. It's like, no, he is the Bernie Sanders of crackpot and like drug war stuff is that he's been consistent. He has not changed. He has not said, you know, over the years, I realized that marijuana, it's not like reefer madness. We're not all kids aren't going crazy. It's not going to kill you. We're fine. He has had the exact same consistency style of consistency uh, as Bernie Sanders. Consistency, comrades, dear folks, is not always a virtue when you have really bad ideas. I'm baffled by consistency. How do your experiences in the world do not change your opinions? I think there's an in, intense lack of intellectual curiosity from people like Jeff Sessions and people like Bernie Sanders. I look forward to the moment, and I don't think it's going to happen, but I wish fervently that it does. Actually, it's happening this week with a, a Congress is voting on uh, sanctions against Russia. Yeah. But where you see a legislative pushback that is specifically targeted towards uh, the bad things about Trump. I don't necessarily agree. It's part of the Iran sanctions, I think, um, right? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a complicating story. But at some point, uh, Trump's popularity is going to get even worse. His standing is going to get even worse. And uh, people like uh, Rand Paul and Mike Lee and others will hopefully not just introduce a series of bills on criminal justice reform, rescheduling mar- marijuana in a better place, uh, going after mandatory minimums, a bunch of stuff. I, I, I interviewed Rand Paul last week and he was going over a whole host of civil libertarian stuff that he's still working on that he'll get some purchase, uh, not just uh, uh, in the Democratic uh, Party, in the caucus, but also uh, from his own side. Uh, like explicitly, we know Sessions is awful, so we better defang him. Um, hopefully that happens sometimes during this next, you know, three and a half debacle filled years. Yeah. 
Maybe yeah. maybe the Trump administration can actually get something done. You know, something. Well, he's he's like, passed some, more legislation than any president in history. Yes, mostly since yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, except, since except no, yeah, except <laughs> not true. But doesn't matter. Yeah, it's true. I, the one final thing, because um, uh, we're going over. Can I get uh, the opinion of both of you, uh, uh -oh. fine gentlemen, uh -oh. on the? <laughs> The cult-like uh, old blue last that's beer. A that's Vice's beer. Um, uh, so don't say anything bad about it. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Shane. Uh, I, I, you know, I've gotten used to it. Just put it that way. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, on this, uh, the Donald Trump, uh, you know, uh, oh, the, cult, uh, the, uh, the table, the, the table thing with the, the cabinet. Yeah. yeah. Oh. By the way, I a huge credit to, to uh, Jim Mattis, uh, uh, who didn't, who said like. I want to really give a shout out to the military. And he didn't get into the. Oh, I didn't see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like uh, people were so rightfully baffled by this <laughs> kind of like cult, you know, circle of people saying, you are the greatest, my friend. I thank you for your the daily bread that I get from you. And then Mattis <laughs> is like, fuck you at the end. But, it was pretty good. But isn't it. it di did Donald Trump actually invite them to worship him or did he just say what I thought he said was we're going to just go around the room and folks will introduce themselves and talk about what they're doing. And then we'll go about our day. Like I, I'm pretty sure that what is the quote. Say? People will correct us on this. I it, guess I'm pretty sure he didn't say, I, I mean, look, I, no, I only looked at it so I closely. I thought it was like, tell us I what we've been doing. That's great. Yeah, no, so I, that's I, what he said. I, there was much, tell us what we've been doing. That's great. I don't, I don't know. Or did, did he say, no, did he say, right. did I'm he say explicitly, like, tell me what I did. That was great. Cause I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. We should look at this. We should look at it. I think there was a prompt. I think there was a definite prompt, and there certainly was an execution of it. And either way, it's. I mean, the very first person, terrible. the very first person to go was Vice President Pence, and Vice President Pence, I believe, from what I saw, like set the agenda. But I'm, I am telling you candidly that this, to me, is like not a particularly interesting story. So it's the sort I of just headline. Thought it was funny. It's the sort of no, no. I'm, I agree. It gets comical, and I think it's comical that people are animated by it. I don't mind talking about it in any sort of way. I took a quick look at it. I glanced at it, and I thought uh, I didn't actually. I'm sorry, but it did. Look, it this. did look like uh, no, one of those Al Qaeda was, it was hostage weird. videos where the guys no, like, you know, uh, we really should stop bombing. Uh, you know, our Muslim brothers. You know, it's just some guy that's just saying whatever he can say, so he doesn't have his head lopped off. And the still photos of Mattis uh, looked like he was having some serious bowel uh, <laughs> obstructions. Yeah, otherwise known as photos of Mattis. Uh, one thing I want to say uh, during while we're recording this, I saw oh, no. uh, a tweet from uh, somebody named. Bluesier, huh. oh yeah, Bluesier, big fan. Bluesier's great. Uh, who uh, has a St. Louis Blues uh, uh, logo as his uh, as his avatar on Twitter? But he said uh, that uh, the fifth column is now my weekly lawn mowing podcast. Oh, okay. uh, you better have a fucking big long lawn Bluesier because we've been going on for a while. Uh, that's my number one spot for podcast listening. And then my favorite bit. This is uh, like Seinfeld moving up Valerie's speed dial, which if uh, which is a, a great reference. I'm just going to congratulate Blueser on that. It's a very good episode of Seinfeld. You don't know what I'm talking about because you're black and you don't watch Seinfeld. You watch Martin Lawrence instead. That is, this is, uh, this is ridiculous <laughs> and offensive. And, ending on, and, totally and, true. and I, like most people, watch both things. This is like those. <laughs> like both things. Like the, this is, this is like those ridiculous, uh, yeah. um, um, things uh what what is it called now i'm like losing steam wow um, what is uh what is what? it called 
like the black people like watermelon and uh, fried chicken. Stereotypes. Stereotypes. Oh there is the God. word. You just wow. had a stroke. I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> you literally had a stroke Who, on the radio. Are there, are there people like I actually don't really like the fried chicken, but I just don't like I don't like complicated food. Like I don't want you to have a bone in you. Like I just want to eat this thing, and I don't want to have to pull anything. So out many of this. jokes that I'm I was so going to make about I don't want uh, you to have a bone, a bone in, in your food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. Is that a euphemism for something? But who doesn't like fried chicken and watermelon? Like where's the monster I that doesn't enjoy watermelon? Hate watermelon. You hate watermelon. Yes. What about you, Welch? Like I, I was it's walking, I'm I was walking down the street it's in just Manhattan the seeds yesterday. Make you pregnant, so like you can't swallow them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. But that's what I'm saying. Like you like watermelon. No. See, that's where we're wrong. How yeah. But f- you can get seedless watermelon. How the fuck? Which is like magic. Come off this thing so quickly. Unclear. I don't know. Unclear. Wow. I don't know. I just it's, want. It's the cloud of smoke I'm enveloped in. I just want to shout vapors. out to the uh, the Vaporizer. tweeter who that's uh, a woman and I don't have it in front of me, but. Mm. Uh, Who's like loves uh, Camille's uh, singing? Ooh. Uh, loves I forget what she loves about me. Uh, hey, probably baby. everything, and then loves Moynihan's blatant racism. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I responded to her in some way, uh, and I was like, "Shit, should I respond to her?" Because I don't. Maybe people won't it was, realize it was that she was joking. Yeah, it was a and joke. Maybe she wasn't joking. Uh, but I responded to that. I was like, "Oh shit!" If people like look at my feed and they're like, "Well, the answer is obviously uh, it's Camille's blatant racism." He's the one who's I'm, racist. I'm not a. Ra- well, I am in the sense that I dislike all races like i just think races is silly yeah so right. there's that well can we can we end on that thought so i can go 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 to sleep yeah no we can we can i've been drinking these beers for like, <laughs> sluggish let's go drink something better next door all right um I, I can't stay out long i gotta i gotta pack i'm moving okay great let's do it next door okay. all right oh fuck you moving to bed yeah on friday Let's do a special episode on that. Uh, in Bedsty or no, about you about, moving to yeah. yeah, can we talk to that guy who wrote the book about Bedsty? Uh, okay. Let's get yeah, from let's Vice. Get to, I mean, he, yeah, he's not from Vice, is he? I think he was, or he he at least has yeah, written from Vice in some other places. Yeah. yeah, we can get we Scott do Ross on. Yeah, do it. And Scott Ross. Yeah, Massel uh, friends. Okay, Ross. we'll talk he to both of them. London. But Scott Ross doesn't have a, a Baldwin quote on the front of his book. Don't uh, don't rule that out just yet. And a okay. middle finger. Good. Good. In All the shape right. of building. Listen, people, uh, it's been fun. It's been real. Um, I hope this has been uh, interesting and intriguing for you. Um, good night and good luck. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan